Good morning, everyone. We're thrilled to be with you all today. I want to say congratulations also to those of you who graduated high school this past week. And uh, this is really, this is the season for graduations, and, and with that come a lot of graduation speeches, some of which are more memorable than others. And I want to tell you about one commencement speech I'll never forget, which was actually at Liz's graduation from seminary, from Gordon-Conwell. And the speaker for her graduation was Gary Haugen, who's the director of International Justice Mission, or IJM. It's an incredible Christian organization that does work with some of the, the toughest realities of, of evil and injustice in the world. They fight sex trafficking, child slavery, forced prostitution, things like that, and provide legal aid to those who can't defend themselves. And they really come up against some of the, the worst evil and pain that the world has to offer. And Gary stood before this group of beaming seminary graduates who were so excited that day to go out and serve the Lord and do great things for Jesus and the kingdom. And he said, okay, what is the one thing that I want to make sure I tell you all as you get ready to move on into ministry? What's the one thing? And he spoke out of a, a passage that we looked at a couple weeks ago, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, which says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the whole message was about joy and the need for us to rejoice and to celebrate. And I thought, wow, that's, that's weird. I mean, here's this guy, these people, they... they do battle with injustice all the time. They see all the, the most horrible things going on in the world. And here they are telling us, rejoice, rejoice, and find your joy in the Lord. And I wasn't expecting that, but really um, what it comes down to is Gary said, look, if you all don't learn to find your joy in the Lord, if you don't learn to regularly celebrate and practice the discipline of joy and celebration, you will never last in whatever it is that you're going out to do. And none of us in our Christian lives and whatever it is that God invites us and calls us to do will last if we don't learn to rejoice and to celebrate God. And I thought, well, he ought to know better than anybody. And these are people who devote their lives, work uh, to, to combating some pretty awful things, and yet they make a discipline to celebrate and to rejoice in God, uh, to sustain them. And it's, it's critical. So for us here now, we are in the second to last week of a study we've been doing through the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament called Rebuilding, How God Restores People and Cities. And we've seen how God has rebuilt Jerusalem, rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, and rebuilt his people, restored his people. We've looked at revival and the revival that's gone on among God's people and how that's led to lasting change and, and a, just a renewal of God's people doing the things they are meant to do. And then last week we began to look at uh, the reality of kind of loving and caring and investing in the city for the long haul, as God calls us to do. And we'll pick up with that again next week. And Pastor Tom was pointing out, you know, sometimes that comes with challenges. It's hard to love and invest in, in the city for the long haul, the way God calls us to. But right in the middle of all of this, in Nehemiah 12, which we'll look at today, there's this massive epic celebration that happens. And there's a lot of space and attention devoted to this celebration, so a lot of what we'll talk about today will be to devote attention to celebration. So open with me and with us to Nehemiah chapter 12, if you haven't already yet. And we're looking at this whole section um, from verses, chapter 12, verses 27 to 47, but we're actually going to start out today looking with, at verse 44, so the last section. We're going to go to the last part first. So let me read Nehemiah 12, beginning with verse 44. At that time, men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for the contributions, first fruits, and tithes. 
from the fields around the towns, they were to bring into the storerooms the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites. For Judah was pleased with the ministering priests and Levites. They performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did also the musicians and gatekeepers, according to the commands of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there had been directors for the musicians and for the songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. So in the days of Zerubbabel and of Nehemiah, all Israel contributed the daily portions for the musicians and the gatekeepers. They also set aside the portion for the other Levites, and the Levites set aside the portion for the descendants of Aaron. So we've been talking about the theme of revival throughout this series in Nehemiah, and we actually see this theme here again today, that God is renewing his people. We see here that the people were tithing, the priests were performing services, the people were praising God. The musicians and the gatekeepers were doing the work that had been appointed to them. Verse 46 says, For long ago in the days of David and Asaph. So the people in Nehemiah's time were actually doing what God had called them to do generations ago, which they often fell away from, unfortunately. But this revival of personal relationship and corporate intimacy with the Lord that they were experiencing um, during this time had revived them and brought them back to the spiritual life that they were called to live. This spiritual revival brought them back to a regular day in and day out rhythm of serving the Lord joyfully with their whole hearts. So this passage, it's not actually describing dry religious activity or anything like that, but it's describing a people worshiping and relating to their God in a way that they were created to. They, weren't, they were doing what they were meant to do. This small section illustrates that revival isn't true revival if it doesn't actually lead to change in our daily rhythms and routines. Revival actually alters us to the core. It affects us by changing our pattern and our habits. Revival affects all corners of our lives every day of the week. So we see here again that people were engaged in a pure and joyful lifestyle of worship of God. And now we're going to look back at what comes before this, what precedes this. And what we're going to find is that there's an incredibly big, joyful, over-the-top celebration. Richard Foster, who is kind of the spiritual disciplines guru um, in the Christian world, talks a lot about spiritual practices. Um, he writes, and you'll see it on the slide. He says, often I'm inclined to think that joy is the motor, the thing that keeps everything else going. Without joyful celebration to infuse the other disciplines, things like prayer, devotion, scripture reading, community, things like that, we will sooner or later abandon them. All right, so joy is the motor behind all the lifelong, consistent day in and day out disciplines of life with God. And so we're going to go back now to the beginning of our section today and look at this over the top epic celebration that happens with God's people. We'll start in verse 27. This is a, a, a day of celebration to dedicate the walls of Jerusalem. And now the wall has actually already been done for a while. It's been built for a while. But now they decide to dedicate it and to have a, a prolonged celebration, not only to celebrate the build, rebuilding of the wall, but all that it represents about how God has rebuilt and restored his people. So let's read this description together, starting in verse 27. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem... The Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving 
and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. The musicians were also brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Netaphathites, from Beth Gilgal, and from the area of Geba and Asmaveth. For the musicians had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. When the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. So the first thing we see here is people are being sought out and brought together from far and wide, from a bunch of different places, to all be brought together for this epic day of celebration. We see the priests and the Levites from all their various towns being gathered and called together. These were the people who were commissioned to lead God's people and God's community in worship, and they're all brought together. And then we see the musicians, musicians from all these different villages and towns are brought together to all play their part in this celebration. It reminds me a little bit of an old comedy classic that some of you might remember called The Blues Brothers, where one of the kind of catchphrases in that movie is, we're getting the band back together. And, and they go around to dip city after city, finding all these different musicians. They're like, you all got to come. You all have to be here for this big show, this big concert. We need you all on board to play. And it's kind of like that. They're going around gathering everybody, getting the band back together, so to speak. Except it's not just some band, and it's not a really cool concert to show. But this is, these are roles, these are appointed roles by God for people to play music, to celebrate him, to worship him. Music that glorifies God, gives him thanks, and celebrates him. God had appointed these roles, and so they're all being called back together to play their role as musicians. Then we'll pick up verse 31. I had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall. I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. I just love that. There's two large choirs, two really big groups to sing, and their whole purpose, their sole purpose is just to give thanks. The two large choirs that gave thanks. This is, get, this is getting big. And then there's a bunch of names and places in here that I will not try to read through, but I'll just describe to you what happens next. So these two large choirs that give thanks are all together in one place on the edge of Jerusalem. Then one choir sets off in one direction, the other choir sets off in the other direction, and they sort of encircle the city and almost kind of make a perimeter around it. They, they cover the whole, the whole outer edge of the city. It'd be kind of like if in Worcester we had two huge bands or two huge singing groups, lots of noise uh, to make music, and we all gather together at like the summit, like that, that kind of edge, you know, tip of Worcester, and one set off in one direction, one set off in the other direction. We kind of surrounded the city, got up on all the highest hills that Worcester has uh, to make noise and to give thanks. And, and the point of all this is that this was a really big scene. This was not a celebration that just took part off in a corner somewhere, quietly or privately, but this was meant to be loud. It was meant to be public and kind of on display for everyone to see. It was that kind of celebration. Then... Verse 40, the two choirs that gave thanks then took their places in the house of God. So did I, together with the officials, as well as the priests, Eliakim, Maaseah, Miniamin, Micaiah, Elionai, Zechariah, and Hananiah, with their trumpets, and also Masiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzi, Jehoanan, Malkijah, Elam, and Ezer. The choirs sang under the direction of Jezrehiah, And here's the key verse of this whole section. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. So again, this is is loud. 
This is out there, not a private little celebration, but the sound of joy was so great that it could be heard far away. That's how this community celebrates. Yeah, so we see how this community has celebrated together. And the question that I think that brings us to now is, do we celebrate like this as God's people? So I was trying to think of a time of rejoicing similar to this. Um, And this is what I thought of. We're going to watch a a short clip of a video in a moment. Um, It's not really, it's not a Christian example of rejoicing, but it's a game between the Red Sox and the Yankees. I'm going to show you a, a brief clip of it. So even if you hate baseball, you hate sports, just stay with me. So let me set the scene. It was a close game. It's a few years back. The bases were loaded for the Red Sox. And then at this time, Paul and I were living in Boston, and we were actually finishing up a workout at the gym that we were a part of. And we were um, walking out the door, and we saw a TV in the lobby, and we were like, oh, this, there's something happening. So we stopped, um, and then this is what happened. This is what we saw. A rare feat in baseball. Ellsbury at third, leading off in foul territory. And here comes the first stealing home. He's it, and he is safe. He stole home. 3-1 Boston. A standing hole for Ellsbury. He stole second earlier. Now he steals home. Can you believe it? Pizzotta took it behind the plate, tried to tag him, but he beat it with a hit first time. A curtain call for stealing home. A straight steal of home, a rarity in Red Sox annals. Wow, an amazing thing just happened. Jacoby Ellsbury stole home. And the entire stadium at this game was wildly celebrating with abandon. Back at the gym, Paul and I were high-fiving the random strangers that we were watching. Um, They were gathered around the TV that we were. And we cheered with the people around us while the stadium on TV continued to erupt with cheers and jubilation. And then we walked outside the gym to go home. We stepped outside, and we literally stopped in our tracks. What was that noise that we heard? We looked at each other. It couldn't be, could it? We were over a mile away from Fenway Park, but we could hear the roar of that crowd. We could even make out the chant, let's go Red Sox. It was unreal to be able to hear the throng and cheers of the crowd so far away. So that's likely what this scene is that we find in Nehemiah here. What Paul described in verse 43, the sound of rejoicing could be heard far away. We were far away and we could literally hear the sound of rejoicing Red Sox fans. So great, the sound of rejoicing could be heard far away, but in this instance, it's because a guy stole home, which is great, but... We couldn't think of a local example of Christians celebrating the Lord Jesus Christ in this way. So the question is, if God is so awesome, if he is such an amazing um, God who created the universe and loves our individual souls, why don't we live with more joy? Why don't we live like the people in that stadium? Why don't we live lives of celebration? As Christians, we have been given the most amazing gift in all of history and all of the earth that God loved us so much that he came to earth and dwelled among us, lived among us in the muck and mire of this world and died for our sins and rose again so that we could eternally live with him and so that he could restore our world to be the way it was created to be. So why, with this amazing news and knowledge, don't we celebrate more? Why don't we live lives of joy? I think a lot of us in the American church have a little bit of a celebration problem. 
Now, Paul and I have spent times worshiping in predominantly African-American or African or Latino churches and come away thinking, wow, these churches know how to celebrate. But celebrate the Lord as well. But most of the time, when we're in church settings, when we're in the majority, our celebration is, shall we say, a little more subdued. Which, some of that, it's cultural, like some of us are quieter people, it's totally fine, but... There's nothing subdued about the celebration that we see here in Nehemiah. This is unfettered joy and celebration of the Lord. Celebration is a spiritual practice that God has invited us into. Some of us do it better than others. And he wants his people to celebrate and be joyful with abandon. And again, it is so important that we learn how to celebrate better. Remember that Richard Foster says joy is the motor that drives the other spiritual practices. If we actually, if we don't learn how to celebrate better, we actually won't be able to sustain the other spiritual practices that God has called us to. So I want to take a few minutes to look at what we learn about what celebration is from this passage. So we're going to look at four characteristics of celebration. First, we learn that celebration is extravagant. In this passage, we see that Nehemiah brings people from near and far. He assembles these two enormous choirs that we saw. And to do all this, this wasn't just something he could whip up in the moment. It took a lot of, a large amount of time, energy, and people and resources to do this. Celebration is extravagant. Weddings are extravagant celebrations. World Series victory parades are extravagant celebrations. It's okay and it's good for celebration to be extravagant, especially when we are celebrating the Lord. In Matthew 26, you may know this story. There's a story of a woman who takes a jar of very expensive perfume and anoints Jesus' feet with it. The dynamic that we see, though, is the disciples who are there by say, this is a waste. She should have sold that perfume and given the money to the poor. But Jesus says, no, this is a beautiful thing. She is celebrating and honoring me. Yes, it's over the top. It's not cost effective, but it's celebrating Jesus. Anything that we do to celebrate Jesus is great. And at the same time, extravagant celebration doesn't have to cost gobs and gobs of money or any money at all. We can celebrate what, that, who God is, that he's a good God um, by, by enjoying creation, by worshiping and dancing together, by breaking into song, by throwing parties, using an extravagant amount of time to celebrate Jesus because he's worth it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so celebration is extravagant. Also in this passage, a second mark of celebration we see is that celebration is intentional. This is not just a spontaneous party that breaks out, although spontaneous celebration is great too, but it wasn't like the Israelites were just having a great day and thought, oh, I feel awesome, let's have a party. Like this was carefully planned in advance, a date was set, a lot of preparation went into it, careful planning, there was a procession with specific roles people had, and a lot of time built up to it that this was going to be the day that we celebrate. And I'm sure out of a whole city full of people, not everybody was having an awesome week that week. Not everybody was probably having a great day. There were probably situations in people's lives, big and small, at home, with family, or in their lives that that weren't awesome. And not everything in the city was awesome at that time either. But this was a day to celebrate in an intentional way 
because God was worth it for who he is and for what he had done. And really, if we just wait until we all feel celebratory to celebrate, we might not ever actually do it. But God is worth celebrating, so we need to be intentional. I grew up as a kid in a church tradition where there were prayers that were kind of like written prayers that you would recite, liturgical prayers, uh, say the same thing every time. And as a kid, I thought, oh, this is so lame. You just kind of mindlessly recite this stuff, not even thinking about it. And I I just thought that was so lame. And then later in, in college, I was exposed to what's known as conversational prayer. You kind of talk to God whenever, wherever, and, and use your own words, kind of tell God whatever you want to say. And I thought, yeah, this is, this is it. This is real. You know, this is authentic because I'm, it's from the heart. It's my own words. I really mean this. I thought, this is, this is really it. And it is kind of an amazing, amazing gift that we can talk to the God of the universe at any time with anything we have to say to him. It's amazing. And the bulk of my prayer life now is conversational. But I've learned a couple things over time. One is that even conversational prayer can turn into the same repetition of phrases over and over again, like, oh, dear Lord, we just thank you for this day, and we just pray that you would bless us, Lord, and that you would be with us, Lord, we just thank you for this food, and blah, blah, blah. We kind of can mindlessly recite things, too. But also, I've learned over time that some days, I really just don't have the words. I really just can't muster up the kind of prayers that, that ought to be prayed at a given time. And so should I not do it? No. And so I've, I've found the gift of these old liturgical prayers to be so helpful for me because, you know, some days I'm just not feeling it with God. Some days I don't feel thankful. I don't feel like God is great, but God is still great. And so these things give me words. I want to share a quick example with you. It's from the, the Anglican Book of Common Prayer from the evening prayer, which is meant to be prayed every evening, no matter what kind of day you've had. And there's a line in it that says, We sing your praises, O God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are worthy at all times to be praised by happy voices. O Son of God, O giver of life, your glory fills the whole world. And look, that's true every day, no matter what kind of day I've had. It's worth saying. And if I struggle with wanting to be real, be authentic, I need to remember that actually the truth of who God is and what he has done is more real than whatever I may feel in a given moment or a given occasion. And I may not have a happy voice one day. I may not feel happy, but I can still declare that God is worthy to be praised by happy voices because he is, and that's true. So it's been so good for me to be intentional about saying these kinds of things over and over, every day, because they're always true. I need to be rooted in something much more real and authentic and deep than just how I'm feeling on a given day. And we need to be intentional with how we celebrate God, intentionally putting aside time to celebrate specific things. You know, every year Christians celebrate the birth of Jesus in an extravagant way at Christmas time. We celebrate that God came and dwelt among us. Every year at Easter, Christians celebrate that Jesus rose from the dead and conquered sin and death forever and we can live eternal life with God. We celebrate that every year, no matter what kind of year it is. We celebrate Christians on some kind of regular basis, the death and the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins by taking communion together. We do this on a regular, intentional basis because these things are worth celebrating all the time, no matter how we're doing. So we need to be intentional 
about how we celebrate. It's not just a happy, you know, everything's awesome, like the Lego movie. Um, not everything is awesome. And you know, the, the international justice mission workers know that better than anyone. So they don't gloss over that stuff. They don't turn a blind eye to that stuff. But they know if they're to continue to engage with it as God calls them to, they've got to celebrate God. And they've got to find their joy in God. So celebration is intentional. A third characteristic of celebration that we see in this passage is that celebration is communal. We see throughout this passage that a large number of people people are gathered together to celebrate. This type of celebration isn't private devotions in one's home, but this is a celebration where many people from near and far have been gathered together. Celebration's communal. It is meant to be done as a group. I've gotten to lead a number of ministry teams over the years um, through my work with InterVarsity on college campuses. And one thing I always do um, is to make my staff team celebrate the year together at the end of the school year. I actually just got to do this last weekend, and I want to show you a couple of examples of what we did to show why community celebrate, communal celebration is powerful. So this first picture, um, again, celebration can be extravagant. So a few of us blew up about 80 balloons to create an atmosphere of celebration so that when my team walked into the room, they could know right off the bat that this was a time together to celebrate the Lord. We had, we had a good time with those balloons. The next picture, um, we see some candles. And each of these candles, there's about 86 there, represent college students who came to faith in Jesus Christ this past year for the first time on campuses where this group of staff worked. We lit them together, and then we took turns telling stories of individual students that we knew who had come to faith. What was interesting was that each of us individually was aware of some of the things that God had done in these students' lives, but it was a powerful communal experience to hear stories of God's work in other places and to celebrate them together. Another thing that we did together was to make a timeline— Paul's going to help me unfurl this. We took time to pause and remember the things that God had done during the past school year. We wrote them down. We posted them during the month they happened. And this is what we came up with. Still going. So what's represented here is over 180 stories of things that God did on campus this past school year in the places that we represented. So the the orange are the stories from the Worcester area schools, yellow is from Western Mass, blue is from Springfield and surrounding areas, and green is from Hartford and surrounding areas. So just to say again that each of us individually was aware of some of these stories, but when we got to see all of them lined up together, we were able to celebrate God even more, to hear stories of God's work in other places and celebrate them together. So that is the power of communal celebration. When God does something great in our life, or when we just realize that God is good, he's great, the invitation is to celebrate with others. Invite others in to celebrate with you. Life group, your friends, we can all see more of God's greatness and goodness together than on our own. That's what the Israelites did in this passage. They experienced communal celebration. They did. They experienced communal celebration that that built up the community of faith as they celebrated together and saw a huge picture of how awesome God is. But a final thing that's true of their celebration is that it was also a witness. 
was a witness to people outside the city, outside this particular community of faith, a witness that God was alive and God was real and God had done great things, the sound of their rejoicing could be heard far away, which is to imply people outside this community. I wonder how that really characterizes a lot of Christians today, that the sound of our rejoicing could be heard far away. Is that what we're known for? I feel like far too often a couple things are true. One is, especially in an age of social media, that it's, it can be said of Christians that the sound of their complaining can be heard far away. The sound of their harsh words and judgment towards those outside the church, the sound of their whining, the sound of their critique can be heard far away. That's not always a great witness, not nearly as great a witness as celebrating the awesome God that we know and want others to come to know. But also, some of us, maybe in an effort to not be the, the loud, obnoxious Christian, have a more muted approach to our faith, and no sound is heard from us far away. We don't really say much of anything. We don't make a whole big deal out of our faith, out of what God is doing in our lives. And that, that's tragic, because the things that God does in our lives are meant to be on display for people to see. How else could anyone come to know him? How else could anyone know that God is alive and real if we're not talking about how he's been alive and real in our lives? How could people not know that God is good and powerful and awesome if we're not sharing the stories of his good and powerful and awesome work in our lives? Our celebration of God's goodness to us and God's character is meant to be a witness to others. A friend of mine once talked about this word witness, and sometimes we think when we want to witness to others about Jesus, we've got to like muster up all these great words and uh, figure out exactly what to say, make the right logical arguments, things like that. And I found it really freeing to think of it this way. My friend told me once, look, when I think of witness, I just think, don't censor yourself. Just don't self-censor. It's not about coming up with new things to say, but actually the things that God is really doing in your life, just don't censor that part of your life when you're talking to people. And we have all kinds of opportunities to do that. And we, go, we go into work on Monday after we've met God powerfully here on Sunday, and someone says, how was your weekend? What do we choose to share? You know, we could just talk about our, our lawn care and, and our youth sports and stuff and just kind of censor out the part where God was at work powerfully, but but that does a disservice. The things he does are meant to be known and to be heard. This afternoon, I'm going to go from here to a family reunion, and invariably, people are going to ask, so what's new? There's a ton of amazing things that God has been doing in our lives lately. Prayers he's answered, and the choice I'll have is, well, do I censor that stuff out and choose to talk about something else, or do I just simply say what is and what is true? Because that's a powerful witness, the sound of our joy, of our celebration of God at work in our lives being heard far and wide. The Psalms tell us, declare the wonders of God, declare his good works, his mighty works among the nations. Jesus says to a man that he healed, go and tell your people the great things that God has done for you. He does great works in our lives and they're never meant to be just kept to ourselves or censored out of our conversations. They're meant to be shared so that the sound of our joy and celebration can be heard far away. That is joy as a witness. Again, we see in this passage what we've been talking about. The Israelites celebrate who God is and how great he is. We learned from them these four things, that celebration is extravagant, it's intentional, it's communal, and it's a witness. And I want to encourage us to celebrate and experience joy in the Lord like that today, tomorrow, this week, no matter what 
our circumstances are because God is awesome and worth celebrating. So I wanna end our time by reading a quote from a Christian writer, Adele Calhoun, who's written numerous books on Christian spiritual practices because I think she just expresses this so well. It's gonna be up on the slide. She says, the world is filled with reasons to be downcast, but deeper than sorrow thrums the unbroken pulse of God's joy, a joy that will yet have its eternal day. To set our hearts on this joy reminds us that we can choose how we respond to any particular moment. We can search for God in all circumstances or not. We can seek the pulse of hope and celebration because it is God's reality. Heaven is celebrating. Right now, the cherubim, the seraphim, angels, archangels, prophets, apostles, martyrs, and all the company of saints overflow with joy in the presence of their creator. Every small experience of Jesus with us is a taste of that joy that is to come. We are not alone, and that in itself is reason to celebrate. Amen. So let me end us by praying together. Lord, we celebrate you together in this place. We celebrate that you are a mighty, powerful, amazing, and wondrous God. And we celebrate that you are personal and loving to us. We praise you for who you are, for creating us to live lives of devotion and celebration with you. Lord, we invite you to speak to where we need you. Invite us and show us how to live lives of joy and celebration not only for ourselves, but so that Worcester and the surrounding areas might know of your wondrous love and how great you are. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.